I am Samuel K. Moore for IEEE Spectrum's Fixing the Future podcast. Before we start, I want to tell you that you can get the latest coverage from some of Spectrum's most important beats, including AI, climate change, and robotics, by signing up for one of our free newsletters. Just go to spectrum.ieeee.org newsletters to subscribe. The semiconductor industry is in the midst of a major expansion driven by the seemingly insatiable demands of AI, the addition of more intelligence and transportation, and national security concerns, among many other things. Governments and the industry itself are starting to worry what this expansion might mean for chipmaking's carbon footprint and its sustainability generally. Can we make everything in our world smarter without worsening climate change? I'm here with someone who's helping figure out the answer. Lizzie Bokes is a life cycle analyst in the Sustainable Semiconductor Technologies and Systems Program at IMEC, the Belgium-based nanotech research organization. Welcome, Lizzie. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, coming to talk with us. Um, You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. So let's start with, you know, just how big is the carbon footprint of the semiconductor industry? And is it really big enough for us to worry about? Yeah. So quantifying the carbon footprint of the semiconductor industry is not an easy task at all. Um, and that's because semiconductors are now embedded in so many industries. So the most obvious industry is the ICT industry, which is estimated to be about uh, approximately 3% of the global emissions. However, semiconductors um, can also be found in so many other industries and that their embedded uh, nature is increasing dramatically. So um, they're embedded in automotives, they're embedded in healthcare applications, uh, as far as uh, aerospace and defense um, applications too. So their expansion and adoption um, of semiconductors in all of these different industries just makes it very hard to quantify. Um, and the global impact of the semiconductor chip manufacturing itself um, is expected to increase um, as well because of the fact that we need more and more of these chips. So the global chip market is projected to have a 7% compound annual growth rate um, in the next coming years. And bearing in mind that the manufacturing of the IC chips itself often accounts for the largest share of the life cycle climate impact, uh, especially for consumer electronics, for instance. Um, this increase in uh, demand for so many chips and the demand for the manufacturing of those chips will have a significant impact on uh, the climate impact of uh, the semiconductor industry. So it's really crucial that um, we, we focus on this and we identify the challenges and try to work towards uh, reducing the impact to achieve any of our ambitions at reaching net zero before 2050. Yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, the way you looked at this, it was sort of a, it was cradle to gate life cycle. Um, can you sort of explain what that entails, what that really means? Yeah. So. Cradle to gate here means that we quantify the climate impacts, not only of the IC manufacturing processes that occur inside the semiconductor fab, but also we quantify the embedded impact of all of the energy and material flows that are entering the fab um, that are necessary for the fab to operate. So in other words, we, we try to quantify the um, climate impact of the value chain upstream um, to the fab itself. And that's where the cradle begins. So the extraction of all of the materials that you need, all of the energy sources, for instance, the extraction of coal for electricity production, that's the cradle. 
And the gate refers to the point where you stop the analysis, you stop the quantification of the impact. And in our case, that is uh, the end of the processing of the silicon wafer for a specific technology node. Okay, so it stops basically when you've got the the die, but not the you know it hasn't been packaged and put in a computer. Exactly. Um, and so why why do you feel like you have to look at all the upstream stuff that you know a, a chip maker may may not really have any control over? Um, like, you know, coal and such like that. Mm. So there is a big um, need to analyze your scope three, what is called in in greenhouse gas protocol. Uh, you have three different scopes. Your scope one is your direct emissions. Your scope two is the emissions related to the electricity um, consumption and uh, the production of electricity that you have consumed in your operation. And scope three is basically everything else. And a lot of people start with scope three, all of their upstream materials. And it does have, it's obviously the largest scope uh, because it's everything else other than what you're doing. And uh, I think it's necessary to coordinate your um, supply chain so that you make sure you're doing the most sustainable uh, solution that you can. So if there are, you have power in your purchasing, you have power over how you, uh, how you choose your supply chain. And if you can manipulate it in a way where you have reduced uh, emissions, then that should be done. Um, often scope three is, is the largest proportion of the, um, of the total impacts, uh, A, because it's uh, one of the biggest uh, groups, but B, because there is a lot of materials and things coming in. So, um, so yeah, it's necessary to, to have a look up there and see, <laughs> see how you can best reduce your emissions. Um, and yeah, you, you can have power in, in your, uh, in your influence over what you choose in the end, okay. in terms of what you're purchasing. Oh, all right. So, you know, in your net analysis, what did you see as sort of the biggest contributors um, to you know the chip fabs carbon output? Mm -hmm. So, without effective abatement, um, the processed gases that are released in as direct emissions, they would really dominate the total emissions of the IC chip manufacturing. And this is because the processed gases that are often consumed in IC manufacturing, they have a very high GWP value. So if you do not abate them and you do not destroy them in a in a small abatement system, then uh, their emissions and contribution to global warming uh, are very large. However, you can drastically reduce that emission already by uh, deploying effective abatement uh, on specific process areas, the high impacts process areas. And if you do that, then this distribution shifts. So then you would see that the direct emission, uh, the contribution of the direct emissions would reduce because you've reduced your uh, direct emission output. But um, then the next biggest contributor would be the electrical energy. So the scope to the emissions that are related to the production of the electricity that you're consuming. And as you can imagine, IC uh, manufacturing is very energy intensive. So there's a lot of electricity coming in. So it's necessary then to try to start to decarbonize your, your electricity um, provider or reduce your uh, carbon intensity of your electricity that you're purchasing. And then once you do that step, you would also see that again, the distribution changes uh, and your scope three, your upstream materials would then be the largest uh, contributors to the total impact. 
And the materials that we've identified as being the most or the largest contributors to that impact would be, for instance, the silicon wafers themselves, the, the raw wafers before you start processing, as well as wet chemicals. So these are chemicals that are very specific to the semiconductor industry. There's a lot of consumption there and they're very um, specific and have a high GWP value. Okay. So if we start with, um, unpack a, a few of those. The um, First off, what are some of these chemicals and are they generally uh, abated well uh, these days or is this sort of something that's uh, still a coming problem? Yeah, so... They could be from specific photoresists to uh, there is a very heavy uh, consumption of basic chemicals for neutralization of wastewater, um, these types of things. So there's a combination of having in a high embedded GWP value, which means that it uh, takes a very large amount of or has a very large impact to produce the chemical itself, or you just have a lot that you're consuming of it. So it might have a low uh, embedded impact, but you're just using so much of it that in the end, it's the higher con contributor anyway. So you have two kind of buckets there. Um, and yeah, it would just be a matter of you have to multiply through the amounts by your embedded emission to see uh, which ones come on top. Um, but yeah, we see that often the wastewater treatment uses a lot of these chemicals just for neutralization and, and treatment of um, wastewater on site, as well as very specific chemicals for the semiconductor industry, such as photoresists and uh, CMP cleans, those types of very specific uh, chemistries, um, which again, it's difficult to quantify the embedded impact of because often there's a proprietary, um, you don't exactly know what goes into it. And it's uh, a lot of difficulty trying to actually characterize those um, chemicals appropriately. So often we apply a proxy value to those. Um, so this is something that we would really like to improve uh, in the future would be having more communication with our supply chain and really understanding what the real embedded impact of those chemicals would be. Uh, this is something that we really would need to work on to to really identify the, the, the high impact chemicals and uh, try anything we can to reduce them. Okay. Yeah. And what about those direct greenhouse gas uh, uh, emission chemicals? Um, are those generally you know, are those generally abated uh, or is that something that's still being worked on? So there is quite, um, yeah, a substantial amount of work going into the abatement system. So we have the usual methane combustion uh, of process gases. There's also now development in plasma abatement systems. Um, so there are different abatement systems being uh, developed and their effectiveness is, is quite high. Um, However, we don't have such a good oversight at the moment on uh, the amount of abatement that's being deployed in high volume manufacturing. This again is quite a, a sensitive topic to discuss uh, from, a, from a research perspective when you don't have insight into the fab itself. So asking particular questions about how much uh, de de abatement is deployed on certain tools uh, is not such easy data to come across. Um, so we often go with models. So we use, uh, we apply the IPCC tier 2C model, um, where basically you calculate the um, direct emissions by how much you've used. So it's a mathematical model based on how much you've consumed. There is a model that um, generates the amounts that would be 
uh, emitted directly into the atmosphere. So this is the model that we've applied. And uh, we see that, yeah, it, it does correlate sometimes with the top-down um, uh, reporting that comes from the, the industry. So, yeah, I think there is a, a lot of a lot of um, way forward where we can start comparing top-down reporting to these bottom-up models that we've been generating uh, from a kind of research perspective. So, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do to match those. Okay. Are there any particular um, particular nasties in the in terms of what those chemicals are? Um, you know, I don't think people are familiar with uh, really what comes out of the smokestack of yeah. a, of a so, so one of the highest uh, GWP gases, for instance, would be the sulfur hexafluoride, so SF6. Um, this has a GWP value of um, 25,200 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. Uh, so that really wow. means that it has over 25,000 times more damaging effects to the climate um, compared to a CO2, so the equivalent CO2 uh, wow. molecule. So this is extremely high. And But there's also others um, like NF4, um, that these also have within over a thousand times uh, more damaging to the climate than C uh, CO2. Um, however, they can be abated. So in these abatement systems, you can uh, destroy them and uh, they're no longer being released. Um, there are also efforts going into replacing high GWP gases, such as these that I've mentioned, um, to use alternatives which have a lower GWP value. Um, however, this is going to take a lot of process development and uh, a lot of effort to go into changing those uh, process flows uh, to adapt to these new alternatives. And this will then be a slow adoption into the high volume fabs because, as we know, this industry is quite rigid to any changes uh, that you suggest. So, yeah, mm. it, it will be a slow adoption if there are any alternatives. And for the meantime, uh, effective abatement can destroy uh, quite a lot. But it would really be having to employ and really uh, have those abatement systems on those high impacts process areas. As Moore's Law continues, each step uh, or manufacturing node might have a different carbon footprint. Um, what were some of the big trends your research revealed uh, regarding that? So in our model, we've we've assumed a constant fab operation condition. And this means that we've uh, um, assumed the same abatement systems, the same electrical carbon intensities for all of the different technology nodes, which, um, yeah, so we see that there is a general increase in total emissions under these assumptions. And we double from uh, in total uh, climate um, impacts from N28 to A14. So when we evolve in that uh, technology node, we do see it doubling between N28 and A14. Um, and this is can be attributed to the increased process complexity, as well as the increased number of steps and process steps, as well as the different chemistries being used, different materials that are being Im embedded in the chips. Um, this all contributes to it. So generally, there is an increase because of the process complexities that's required to really reach those aggressive pitches in the more uh, advanced technology nodes. I see. Okay, so as things are... Yeah are uh, progressing they're they're also kind of getting worse in some ways um is there anything yeah uh, you know is this inevitable or is there um yeah 
it, if you make things more complicated, it will probably take more energy and more materials to do it. Uh, also, when you make things smaller, you need uh, to change your processes and use, yeah, for instance, with interconnect um, metals, we've really reached the physical limits sometimes because it's gotten so small um, that the physical limits of really traditional metals like uh, copper or tungsten has been reached. And now they're looking for new alternatives like ruthenium, um, uh, yeah, or uh, platinum, different types of uh, metals which again would if it's a platinum group metal of course it's going to have a more a higher embedded impact so when we hit those limits physical limits or uh limits to the current technology and we need to change it in a way that makes it more complicated more energy intensive again the, the move to euv uh euv is an extremely energy intensive tool compared to duv um but an interesting point there uh, on the EUV topic would be that um, it's really important to keep this holistic view because even though moving from a DUV tool um, to an EUV tool, it does it has a large jump in energy intensity per kilowatt hour, like the power intensity of the tool is much higher. Mm -hmm. um, however, you're able to um, reduce the number of total steps um, for a certain to achieve a certain. Uh, depositional etch so um so you're able to overall reduce your emissions or you're able to reduce your energy intensity of the of the process flow so even though we make all these changes and we might think oh that's a very powerful tool it could it could go and cut down on process steps in the in the holistic view so it's always good to keep uh, a kind of life cycle perspective to be able to see okay if i implement this tool it does have a higher power intensity, but I can reduce half of the number of steps to achieve the same uh, result. So it's overall better. So it's always good to keep um, that kind of holistic view when we're doing any type of sustainability assessment. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting. So the um, um, it, you also looked at um, you know as sort of the nodes. Um, get more uh, advanced and processes get more complex. What does that do to water consumption? Also, so again, the number of steps in the similar sense, if you're increasing your number of process steps, there would be an increase in the number of those wet clean steps as well that are often the, the sorry, the water, uh, the high water consumption steps. So um, if you have an increased number of those particular process steps, then you're going to have a higher water uh, consumption in the end. So it is just the number of, based on the number of steps and the complexity of the process as we advance into the into the more uh, advanced technology nodes. Okay. So it sounds like complexity is kind of king in this, uh, in, in this field. Um, yeah. What should the industry be focusing on most to achieve its carbon goals going forward? Yeah, so I think the to start off, you need to think of the largest contributors and prioritize those. So of course, if you if uh, if you're looking at the total impact and we're looking at a system that doesn't have uh, effective abatement, then of course direct emissions would be the first thing that you want to try to focus on and reducing, as they would be the largest contributors. However, once you start moving into a system which is already has effective abatement, um, then your next uh, 
objective would be to decarbonize your electricity production, go for a lower carbon intensity electricity provider. So you're moving more towards green energy. Um, and at the same time, you would also want to try to target your high impact uh, value chain. So your, your uh, materials and energy that are coming into the fab you need to look at the ones that are the most highly impacting and then try to find a way to f find a provider that does a, a kind of uh, decarbonized version of the same material or try to design a way where you don't need that certain material. So not necessarily that it has to be done in a sequential order. Of course, you, you can do it all in parallel. <laughs> it would be better. So it doesn't have to be one, two, three, but the, um, the idea and the prioritizing comes from targeting the largest contributors and that would be direct emissions uh decarbonizing your electricity production and then looking at your supply chain and looking into those high impact uh materials okay um and you know as a researcher um i'm sure there's data you would love to have that you that you probably don't have um you know what uh what could industry be do better about um uh providing that kind of data uh to make these models work? Mm. So for a lot of our um, a lot of our scope three, so that upstream, that cradle to to fab, let's call it those impacts, um, we've had to use quite a lot, we had to rely quite a lot on life cycle assessment literature or life cycle assessment databases, which are available through purchasing or sometimes if you're lucky, uh, you have a free database. <laughs> But um, so I would say, and that's also because my uh, role in my research group is more looking at that LCA uh, and upstream materials and quantifying the environmental impact of that. So from my perspective, I really think that this industry needs to uh, work on providing data uh, through the supply chain, which is standardized in a way that people can understand, which is product specific so that we can really allocate uh, embedded impacts to a specific product and multiply that through then by our inventory, which we have data on. So for me, it's really uh, having a standardized way of communicating sustainability impact of production, upstream production throughout the supply chain, not only tier one, but all the way up to the cradle, the beginning of the value chain. So this is something, and I know it, it is evolving and it will take, it will be slow uh, and it does need a lot of cooperation. Um, but I do think that that would be very, very uh, useful for for really making our work more realistic, more representative, and uh, then people can rely on it better when they start using our data in their product carbon footprints, for instance. Okay. And um, speaking of sort of your 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 work, um, can you tell me what zero is and uh, how that works? Yeah, this is um, a web app that's been developed uh, in our program. So the SSTS program at iMac. Um, and this web app is is a way for people to interact with the model that we've been building, uh, the LCA model. So it's based on life cycle assessment. And it's really what we've been talking about with this cradle to gate model um, of the IC chip manufacturing process. It tries to um, model a generic fab so we don't necessarily point to any specific fab or process flow uh, from a certain company but we try to make a very generic um, industry average 
that people can use to estimate and, and uh, get a more realistic view on the modern IC chip. Because we noticed that in literature and what's available in LCA databases, uh, the semiconductor um, data is extremely old. And we know that this industry moves very quickly. So there is a huge gap between what's happening now and what is going into your phones and what's going into the computers and the LCA data that's available to try to quantify that from a sustainability perspective. So IMAC Net Zero, um, we work with all of, we, we have the, the benefit of being connected with the industry and our position uh, in IMAC and we have a view on those more advanced technology nodes. So not only do we have models for the nodes that are being generated and produced today, but we also predict the future nodes uh, and we have models to predict what will happen in five years time and 10 years time. So um, it's a really powerful tool and uh, it's available uh, publicly. We have a public version, uh, which is a limited um, it has limited functionality in comparison to the program partner version. Uh, so we work with our program partners who have access to a much more complicated and uh, yeah, deep way of using the web app, as well as uh, the other work that we do in our program. And our program partners also contribute uh, data to the model and we're constantly evolving the model uh, to improve always. So. That's a bit of an overview. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, thank you very much, Lizzie. Um, I have been speaking to Lizzie Bokes, a lifecycle analyst in the Sustainable Semiconductor Technologies and Systems Program at IMEC, the Belgium-based nanotech research organization. Thank you again, Lizzie. This has been fantastic. Today we were talking about making semiconductor manufacturing more sustainable. I'm Samuel K. Moore for IEEE Spectrum, and I hope you'll join us next time on Fixing the Future.